Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, welcome to The Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and today we're talking with women who have chosen to redefine the relationship with alcohol. And we've got a two-time guest, Melanie Minucci, in the house. Hey, Mel. Hey, guys. So happy that you're here to talk about an issue that I know is very important to both of us. I'm super, super happy to be here. I know we've talked IRL a lot about our different relationships with alcohol and why, um, you know, for 2019, it's going to be a topic really on top of everyone's minds. Like, am I drinking too much? Mm-hmm. Am I comfortable with the amount that I'm drinking? And what can I do about it if the answer to those questions is no? So this episode is for people who've ever wondered, should I be more mindful with how I consume alcohol personally? This is for the women who've ever had thoughts like this. I think I'm going to do dry January. I keep reading all of these weird stories and like things in the news about how alcohol like makes your brain shrink and all of these other like really weird things where I started to think about like how I want to rethink my whole relationship. I don't want to give alcohol up for good just because I do think it can be a fun social thing. But I do like the older I get want my body just to be more efficient and it definitely doesn't process alcohol the way that it used to and I don't want people to think that I'm not a fun person or that I don't like to go out or do things because I definitely do. Even when I drink slowly I have noticed that people make comments on it and there's a little bit of like a judginess attached so I can't even imagine how it would be for someone who is completely sober. I've decided to stop drinking because I have some credit card debt that I'm trying to pay off and drinking is really expensive, especially in New York. And then when you drink, you get hungry and then eating's even expensive. It doesn't matter what you eat. Doritos are expensive. But I'm a little bit worried because so much of my social life revolves around drinking. So I definitely hear them on all that. But rewind. Brain shrinkage? Like what? Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about brain shrinkage until I die, probably. I just don't want that in my life. No, I totally hear you there. You know, for me, it's really like I really revisited how I think about alcohol this year. I, you know, it was never like I felt like, oh, I don't need that in my life. Like, I think there's still a place for drinking in my life. But like when I was first starting out in my career, like I really didn't feel comfortable with the amount I was drinking as like a new adult and like out on my own for the first time. Um, And I just really... Just, you know, I started getting a lot more hungover a lot more often and a lot more severely, even if my drinking didn't seem to have changed. And I was like, you know, I can do a little bit better by myself with this. I absolutely have a similar relationship with alcohol as well. I think in my 20s, I really thought that the way to have fun was to be out drinking at night. But once I discovered my relationship with running, I just did not want to be in bed on Sunday or Saturday hungover. I wanted to like get to my run. And then that also made me a little bit mindful about my own family's relationship with alcohol and how there have been people who have you know, really struggled with trying to become sober or just trying to figure out their relationship. And so I think I found a happy medium in just having like a glass of wine with a nice dinner. 
I love that you brought up your family because I feel like, you know, you're I'm at the very, very bottom of the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. You're a little bit more in the middle. For me, I feel like my conversations with my friends, or my family around drinking are a lot different than like the paradigm we had for it even 10 years ago. I think the new approach to drinking is, you know, it's a lot more mindful. It's a lot more, it's a lot less about if you have a quote unquote problem, um, which, you know, there's a lot of room for if you do struggle with alcohol and alcohol dependency, um, you know, to get that help. It's a lot less stigmatized than it once was too. Yes. And I love the way that our lifestyle team is covering this issue. I learn so much every day. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that. Hashtag Rockstars. <laughs> so I actually wanted to bring on one of the experts we work with on the lifestyle team a lot. Um, her name is Lindsay Chester. She's a licensed clinical social worker based in New York, and she works with a, she works on substance use disorder and family therapy. And I wanted to talk to her about the new way we're talking about alcohol. She has a lot of really great insights into how we define our relationship with alcohol um, that I sort of want to get into before we really kick off this episode. My name is Lindsay Chester. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor. When we think about reasons that women might choose to explore sobriety, there are an enormous amount of reasons. A lot of them tend to be because they'd like to have a better relationship with themselves, which can then translate to you know, a more effective work life, more effective dating life, more effective home life, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I would say when I think of the difference between someone's intentions of whether they'd like to cut down their drinking or whether they'd like to approach a drinking from an abstinence-based model, I think that it all starts from first being mindful and understanding what is your relationship to the substance and ascertaining whether your relationship to the substance is problematic in at least one area of your life, like your work life, your home life, etc. And then from there, you know, seeking professional support to help you figure out a next step. I would say that it really comes down to just first you having awareness and becoming honest with yourself about what's really going on in your daily life and your thoughts around it. So like what kinds of thoughts are you having around the drinking? Are you thinking about it a lot? What are the quality of the thoughts? What are the content of the thoughts? And then taking that information to a professional and letting them do what they're good at, which is helping guide you and helping you understand and then helping them find the right help for you. And we also wanted you to know that if you or someone you know is seeking help for substance use, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's helpline. It's 1-800-662-HELP, and help is 4357. Going back to what you were saying about the dialogue being different between generations, I found that so interesting because growing up as like a wee one, I was watching Saved by the Bell and like Zach Morris would always throw the huge rager when his mom was out or just also in college, like watching the Gossip Girl crew just out all night at 14. (laughs) Um, It just seemed like if you weren't doing that, then you were more of a nerd. I completely agree with that. I think that's such a good point. Like the media like to like Gen Z or whatever like has today, it is so like not anti-drinking per se, but it really normalizes a healthy, mindful relationship with alcohol. Like look at freaking Peter Kavinsky with the kombucha 
at the rager into all the boys I've loved before. Like, I just thought that was so amazing. Like, you don't see that. And you never saw that when with the stuff we were growing up with. Absolutely. I mean, and even when you flip to, like, Riverdale, the hangout spot is Pop's Diner, and they're drinking shakes, and they're playing this Gargoyle King game. Like, it's just such a different headspace. Mm-hmm. It doesn't glamorize alcohol use in the same way that, like, our, you know— 10 Things I Hated About You did. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was such a TBT. (laughs) So let's hear from three women who've made the choice to not drink for very different reasons. My name is Zara Ahmed. I'm 27 years old, and I live in Houston, Texas. My reason for being sober is that I'm a practicing Muslim, and in the Quran, our holy book, it states that alcohol, or specifically intoxication through alcohol or any other drugs, is prohibited. Alcohol has never been a big deal to me, and that's probably because the friends I had growing up didn't drink either, because most of them are Muslim, and the friends that do drink have been pretty respectful for the most part. The only time I ever felt peer pressure was maybe a couple of years ago. A coworker kept telling me to just have one sip. Like, you know, oh, come on, one sip isn't a big deal. I said, no thanks. Then he puts a drink in front of me, you know, just constantly bugging me about it. So that was a bit frustrating, and I felt really disrespected in that moment. I haven't ever been tempted to drink alcohol, but I am curious just because I've never had it before, you know, not even a sip as to what I'd be like if I was less inhibited. But that's just kind of a fleeting thought. For me personally, my faith outweighs that curiosity. The most annoying assumption that people make is thinking that they completely know me just by this one decision I make. Some people tell me like, oh, you're such a goody two-shoes. And to me, it's just like, okay, just mind your own business, you know. But for the most part, people are really respectful and kind of indifferent to it, honestly. Hi, my name is Emily Pope. I've been sober for five years. I initially got sober when I was 24 years old because I was pretty much a blackout drinker. If I went out... Or if I started drinking, I had a hard time moderating and I was on medication for anxiety. And the moment when I decided that I had had enough and I wanted to quit drinking was when my roommates came up to me and let me know that they were worried about me. And I just realized that all this anxiety I felt about drinking and always trying to moderate and and never wanting to black out, but it always happening, was just too much stress and it wasn't really worth it anymore. So I decided to stop. When I first stopped drinking, it was definitely hard. It was definitely an adjustment. So over the past five years, I've made a lot of friends who are sober. I've really come into my own and I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything by not drinking. I still go out with friends who drink. I don't feel like there's anywhere I can't go. The major benefit is that I feel like I am able to be my most authentic self. And people typically, when I turn down a drink, are fine. The thing that I've noticed the most is that nobody really cares or notices whether or not you're drinking. And if they ask you why you're not drinking, it's typically just out of genuine curiosity. And they're always like, wow, that's 
so great for you. And they say, I could never do that. And I'm like, sure you could. My name is Julia. I'm 27 and I'm one of the people who produces the Bustle Huddle. I wouldn't say that I'm consciously sober, more that I'm kind of sober by default. I had a couple experiences where even just a few sips of alcohol would result in the first time me just throwing up. And then after that, like, crying uncontrollably, I quickly realized that I would never be the kind of person who could just go out and have a drink. It wasn't that big of a surprise because in my family, my mom, for example, if she has a sip of alcohol, she just faints. I think it was harder when I was younger because there were more people saying, oh, it's just an issue of like your tolerance. If you start slow, you can build it up. And that quickly became very annoying because I think those people just didn't understand that I would never feel happier or less inhibited or all of those things that I hear people describing about being drunk. For me, I just feel very, very hot, very congested, very nauseous, and I have a huge headache. Since then, I've done more reading and figured out that I am probably alcohol intolerant, um, which means that I don't have an enzyme that helps people to metabolize alcohol. So instead, for me, it just builds up toxins in my body and it creates this reaction that is almost like an allergic reaction. Now I never order a drink because to me it's just a waste of money. If I go out with friends to, say, a nice restaurant, I'll see them ordering like a $20 cocktail and I think, oh my gosh, that is so much money and I can put that $20 towards a whole nother meal. On the other hand, I love pie and cake and all of these desserts and so in the end, like, maybe it just kind of balances out. So I definitely get where Julia's coming from about having dessert instead of alcohol. Oh like my God. I am definitely that girl who I think even last weekend, my friends after dinner were going to a whiskey bar and there's a bakery that I love right down the street. And I was like, have fun, guys. I'm going to go get some cake. And that's like <laughs> so much joy for me. I feel like that might be my like sense of joy that other people might get from having like a really good cocktail. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, I think what's really interesting about these three stories we just heard is there are a lot of ways people are approaching this conversation around alcohol in ways that like maybe we didn't have the vocabulary for 20 years ago. Like we just couldn't talk about it in this way. That's like, I prefer to spend my money on dessert. Thank you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. You know, that is something I can get behind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think also just having like that open forum for experiences where there's no wrong way or right way. And and like what we're saying is even though, you know, Julia and I might have a piece of carrot cake, we're not saying that that's any better or worse Mm -hmm. than having a Jack Daniels and Coke. It's just the way that we kind of have fun. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I think that's so fair. Also, we want to give a special shout out to Emily Pope, whose story you just heard. Um, She's the editorial director of this really awesome website called The Temper. We have a lot of great resources for living alcohol-free. So definitely make sure you check out The Temper and much love to Emily. We wanted to share just one more journey with you all, this time with someone who didn't entirely give up alcohol, but did a drastic rehaul after getting honest with herself about the ways it was affecting her daily life and her future goals, which are some huge ones considering that she just had a book published. Let's welcome Gabby Moss. I'm her number one fan. Hello. (laughs) 
so happy that you're here with us. Oh, so happy to have a number one fan. You tweet a story, I'm like, plus one! <laughs> <laughs> well, Cosign. Get ready to hear a story about a time why I didn't have many fans. <laughs> <laughs> so Gabby, let's start off with discussing your former relationship with alcohol. Um, well, I guess in high school, when a lot of people start experimenting with drinking, I thought it was very uncool. I thought it was something that jocks did. And like, I was like an artist and I was like, oh, that's disgusting. Uh, I also had had really severe, untreated social anxiety like my entire life. You know, this is the 90s, so people would just be like, get over it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got to college and I was having a really rough time right out of the gate. I was like, I'm so anxious. I want to go home. And then at the end of freshman orientation, they had this huge party and I was like, fine, I'll have a drink. And then I was had like three drinks and then I was like, oh, my God, wait, you don't have to have feelings when you're drunk. Like, this is amazing. Why did no one tell me this? I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. That set the stage for the kind of college experience that you would think it would set the stage for. Uh, I drank a lot in college. Mm -hmm. When did you first start to get the sense that alcohol was negatively affecting your life? Um, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know a lot of people drink a lot in college, but it sort of caused problems between, you know, me and boyfriends or me and, you know, my friends. Uh, fairly quickly, like, I would drink a lot. I would, you know, black out. I'd be the friend who's like barfing and has mascara running down her face and it was like why does he like me I was that person pretty often but um you know I sort of couldn't could not imagine any other way going about uh my life at that time I know for a lot of people that kind of behavior ends as soon as college ends but it did not do that uh, for me I moved to New York pretty soon after and kept drinking a lot uh through my first job where I think uh, my heavy drinking played a pretty strong role in my getting fired. That's such a good point that a lot of people kind of gloss over. You graduate from college and then it's like that drinking is just not as like socially accepted anymore because now you're an adult in the real world. But it's like that behavior, it's still a part of your everyday. And I feel like I had a lot of friends who struggled their first year working because you're just and then you have more money so it's like that's never really talked about you have more money like zero like whatever little oversight you had in college is totally gone right. so you are mm -hmm. you know left to your own devices and uh left to my own devices i became someone who drank like five nights a week so what was a signal to you that you had to make a change well the heavy drinking went on for a pretty long while, like much longer than anyone else's, you know, post-collegiate stuff. Uh, when, you know, I was still drinking to the point of blackout several times a month when I was like 28. A few things, I guess, happened around that point that made me think I needed to get a handle on this. Um, I met the guy who is now my husband and realized pretty quickly that if I did not get a handle on, you know, I would get drunk and kind of do things that were out of character. Uh, and I realized that I was going to kind of totally blow this relationship if I didn't stop doing that so much. Uh, I also, you know, I had just kind of had low level office jobs for a long time. And uh, around that time, I'd started trying uh, first trying to write and sort of realized that I also couldn't do this if I was, you know, constantly 
hungover or in a state of crisis, like sending a million text messages apologizing for whatever terrible thing I had done the night before. Uh, so kind of all of that together made me um, take a hard look at my life. So you've clearly done a lot of hard work and a lot of soul searching. What's your current relationship with alcohol? Um, my current relationship with alcohol is uh, not complete abstinence, which I feel mixed things about. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's the best way, but it's uh, the way things have been in my life. Um, I will maybe have a glass of wine once every two weeks, probably at this point, but um, which, you know, which feels right to me, but there is sometimes a voice in the back of my head being like, you are playing blackjack with your life. Oh, I think that's super fair. Um, you know, I have a very similar approach to drinking where it's like you can't be 100% necessarily, especially as you go on and you keep having, um, you keep exploring these feelings. And I know you talked to Ruby Warrington, the author of the new book, Sober Curious, about this. Uh, yeah, Ruby had, I thought, a fairly similar experience where she had trouble with alcohol that kind of fell beyond the you know, clinical definition of alcoholism, but still gave her a lot of trouble and that she kind of felt her way to her own solutions as well. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to hear what you guys talk about. Oh, she is a delight. Let's get into it. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Hey, Ruby, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, loved uh, reading the book and was very interested to talk to you because I sort of went through a similar thing a few years ago, and um, it's an experience that gets talked about much less frequently than the more traditional AA or rehab experience. Well, that was kind of the aim with the book since hosting my Club Soda NYC event series. The whole goal was really to let's just talk about this openly because, hey, I bet a lot more of us are actually feeling conflicted about our alcohol use than would ever really kind of feel comfortable admitting it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your own journey uh, into being sober curious? Sure. So I um, sort of came of age on the journalism, magazine journalism scene in London, which is notoriously quite alcohol saturated, I suppose. And so I really learned to drink, I guess, quite heavily, although at the time it didn't really feel like it because I didn't really drink more than anybody else. I was drinking, I guess, three or four nights a week, a few glasses of wine with dinner, probably a little bit more at the weekends, occasional all-nighter. And this went on throughout my 20s and 30s. And by my middle 30s, I had really begun to notice how the negative part of my drinking experiences, i.e. the hangovers, just started to far outweigh actually the positives, the kind of things we look for in alcohol, the joyful, connected kind of 
fun, relaxing times that we associate with drinking. And it was a very quiet questioning because I, yeah, as you rightly pointed out, we kind of learned that if you begin questioning your alcohol consumption, that means you have a problem. It's likely you're an alcoholic and now you must go to AA and never drink alcohol again. And that can be very daunting for anybody whose who's social life, whose family life, whose relationships kind of revolve around alcohol. Would my life be better without alcohol was the question that just kept resurfacing. And over the years, I gradually took more concrete steps towards answering that for myself, first and foremost, by kind of beginning to drink less, choosing not to be in situations where I'd be expected to drink a lot. Then it really kind of kicked into high gear when I moved to New York in 2012 and began work on my own online magazine, which is called The Numinous. I found myself, instead of going to bars on Friday night, I'd be going to breathwork circles or Kundalini yoga parties or moon circles and having all kinds of different social experiences where alcohol was most definitely not on the table. And finding I was finding all of those things I was looking for, the connection, the relaxation, the transcendence and the magic, I suppose, that I had been looking for in alcohol in other ways. And that really helped me to really begin to realize I didn't actually need alcohol to experience any of those things, that it was absolutely in my power to seek out and generate those things for myself in other ways. But it's been quite a journey. And it's been, as I describe in the book, uh, the undoing and the making of me, I would say. Now, one of the things I found so compelling about Sober Curious is I feel like you are kind of asking um, a different set of questions than you normally hear in our culture when people are discussing problematic relationships with alcohol. Mm. Why do you think there is kind of just this one story we tell? You're either an addict, you know, you're drinking to get up in the morning, or, you know, everything's fine, keep doing whatever you're doing. Right. Sort of, why, why do you think it functions in such extremes? There has been traditionally a very black and white approach to addiction, I think, in general. And um, I think partly it's just that there hasn't been the research really done into addiction as a mental health disorder until more recently. And there was a study that came out just last week, actually, that now recognizes five different types of problem drinkers. The most mild type being somebody who has hangovers as a result of their drinking. That's now classified as problem drinking. And that would be, I would say, pretty much everybody who drinks <laughs> at some point, right? Yeah. Up to the more severe level, the fifth category, which would be, like you said, you know, somebody who needs alcohol to function physically, who has perhaps found themselves in dangerous physical situations, has caused harm to others, etc. All the things we might traditionally associate with alcoholism or alcoholic behavior. So I think partly it's just that the research hasn't been there. And I'm definitely not anti-AA. I think it's an amazing community. The fact that you can find free peer-to-peer -peer support in any city globally, like is pretty much amazing. We don't see that level of mental health support anywhere else and it's invaluable. But I do wonder actually if the fact that that conversation about problematic relationships with alcohol has been kept behind these closed doors. You know, part of the program is do not discuss this outside of these rooms. The fact that we haven't had so much open dialogue about it, I think has 
maintain this very black and white approach that you described. Do you think any of our investment in this super extreme model is just so we don't have to question our relationship with alcohol? <laughs> I'm talking a little bit about my own experience. You know, I was at one point your your girlfriend who has five extra glasses of wine on a night out and is, you know, crying with mascara running down her face sitting on the curb by the end of the night. But then I would, you know, go home and take a take some addiction quiz and be like, well, you know, I can go weeks at a time without that happening. So I guess my life is fine. Yes, actually, I do. I think that's definitely a part of it. I think because the the abstinence model suggests that if you have a problem with drinking, you must never drink again. That's like I said, it's a very, very daunting prospect for someone who is used to having alcohol as a, a friend in any and all social situations. So we already touched on this a bit, but Tell us a little bit about how your life has changed since becoming sober curious. You know, maybe what what is the most su- surprising change? The most surprising change of all, I describe something in the book that I call the confidence paradox. I am actually naturally way more confident when I'm not outsourcing that confidence to something outside of me. So, for example, I guess I started experimenting with alcohol around age 15, which is a pretty that confusing time for a woman, you know, and I used alcohol then to feel more confident about the way I looked more sexually confident. It's almost like I didn't get the chance to develop my own inner confidence through just proving to myself that I am okay in all kinds of situations. And actually learning that I can do all those things without alcohol has been pretty amazing. Have there been any difficulties that have been surprising or that you didn't anticipate? Um, I think as an entrepreneur and somebody who really, really loves my work, the most difficult thing has been not having an easy switch off at the end of a work day. I definitely was someone who used Friday night drinks to kind of call it a week and just switch into weekend mode. The downside of that being that my weekend was mainly spent quite incapacitated and just kind of like recovering from whatever happened on Friday night. But I look back now and I love waking up on a Saturday at 7am and just being like, I have a whole day now to fill with whatever I want, you know? So this episode is about women and alcohol. And we, we talked to a few women about their relationships, you know, with with drinking, with trying to drink less. And um, we wanted to talk to you about some practical tips for negotiating life as a young woman who is sober curious. So um, we wanted to start off asking about sex and dating, Yes, <laughs> which I think is a, a topic of enormous struggle for people who are trying to not drink or drink less. Yes, exactly. It's um, extremely challenging. And this is definitely one of the first questions and one of the biggest challenges that people come to our events with and have spoken to me about. I can't really speak from personal experience too much. I've been with my husband for 20 years, so I've had to kind of speak to friends about this. First of all, I think there's this perception generally, and it goes for people who are in relationships and single people, that lots of sex is a good sex life. And I think that that's definitely something that can be debunked by choosing to get sober curious. And I think some of the questions that come up around that are, why am I having sex with this person? Am I having sex with this person because I'm drunk and because I want to feel like I'm a sexually liberated being or am I having sex with this person because I'm really attracted to them and I feel a a connection with them. I think that having, you know, sober curious sex possibly means 
having less sex. Um, and it's almost like a perception shift around that not necessarily being a bad thing. I spoke to a colleague of mine who writes for The Numinous, who's a, a love and connection expert for the digital age. And she has been sober dating herself for many years and much prefers it to drunk dating. Her reasoning being that you really know when there's a connection with someone rather than just being in those awkward situations where maybe you kind of like have another drink just to make the conversation flow a bit easier, then wind up in some weird texting thing with them for a week or two afterwards, then get ghosted by them because there was never anything really happening anyway, then feel terrible about yourself. So I think, yeah, there are some key things which would be you mentioned, you know, so much dating happens in bars. I think a good way to go about it is if someone suggests going out for a drink, say, well, hey, how about we go for brunch? Or there's a really nice park that just kind of opened up near me. How about we get an ice cream and go for a walk in the park or something? If their immediate response to a suggestion like that is no, then possibly this isn't the kind of this isn't someone you should be going on a date with anyway. From the folks you've been talking to about sober dating, is the consensus usually to put out that you're not drinking before you even go on the first date? Or is it something that comes up later? I guess if it was me, I probably wouldn't put it up. I wouldn't state it up front. I would try and guide the date towards an activity that wasn't drinking based. And then when it comes up, and I think this goes for dating situations and any social situations, if the questions come up, why aren't you drinking? Be honest about it. Like say, because you know what, it hasn't been making me feel great. And I'm just trying something different and see if that sparks a conversation. There's so much to talk about within that. Now to go over to something you have a little more experience with and that you talk about in your book, what about becoming sober curious when you're in a relationship where, you know, you and your partner have been drinking together, you have established patterns from years of just hanging out and, you know, living this one kind of lifestyle, and now you are interested in changing it? That can definitely be a period of adjustment. And it certainly was in my relationship. We had had a, so much fun drinking together. We were each other's favorite drinking buddies. <laughs> when I first really started cutting back, not wanting as a kind of default Friday night activity to you know hit our local pub, I would say he felt a little sad, actually. Like he was maybe losing a part of me that he found or losing somebody from his life that he found had found really fun. But it's a marker of, I guess, our relationship that he didn't kind of freak out and didn't make it all about him, definitely didn't feel judged in his drinking choices. And slowly over time, we had some kind of slightly quieter, less raucous, different feeling dates where I wasn't drinking, maybe he would have one. And the thing is, if you're sitting across the table from somebody or you're sitting on the sofa with somebody and you're not drinking and they are, they'll kind of automatically drink less anyway, because it feels, it can feel quite strange to be the one who's drinking when the other person isn't drinking. So slowly over time, he just began drinking less too. And we discovered much to my relief and to our mutual delight, that we actually have just as much to talk about, just as much fun, laugh just as much when we're not drinking as well. And that actually the drink was just something we were doing habitually that we didn't actually need in our relationship at all. And he is now sober curious too. Success story. It's a, it's a happy story. And, I, <laughs> and, you know, that's my story. And it's definitely not going to be the case for everybody necessarily. And I think that, again, it just really comes down to choosing to be true to what you need and yourself and questioning if I'm 
if the only way I can be in this relationship with a person is drinking, is this a relationship that's really, truly aligned for me that really has my best interests at heart? And that seems like a question that applies to friendships as well. Mm, most definitely, yeah. I think there'll definitely there'll be a natural reshuffling of your friendship group if you decide not to drink. I definitely have friends who I still have just as much kind of like rowdy fun with as when I used to go drinking with them. People who are still drinkers, like in terms of my kind of close friends from my drinking days, not that many people have quit drinking, but certainly some of the people I'm closer to from that time will not drink when they're hanging out with me and have absolutely no problem with that. Yeah, there's a reshuffling. And I think the idea of kind of judgment comes up a lot. And I think just try not to judge when there might be these kind of natural ebb and flow in terms of friendships and just allow yourself to trust that whoever is meant to be in your life is going to be in your life. And if some friendships are meant to phase out, then they're meant to phase out. And that's okay. Now, you talk a little bit in the book about sort of uh, alcohol related FOMO, you suddenly become afraid, oh, my friends are all going to happy hour and having these parties are not inviting me and they're deepening their relationship. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be close with them anymore. Yeah, I actually call it FOMA, fear of missing <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> I think most people's FOMA is social based because for the majority of social drinkers, it's something that we use to socialize. So yeah, fears might be everything from I'm going to miss out, I'm going to be boring, people are going to judge me, I'm going to ruin everyone else's night if I don't drink. And I think when FOMA strikes, it's really helpful to just like remind yourself of why you're making this choice. Really try and focus on all the things you're cultivating on bringing into your life. It's like someone's 30th birthday and everyone's going to be drinking. Ah, ah, freak out. <laughs> what do I do? Just go, just go to the birthday and see how it goes down. Like just don't judge or expect your future trip on how it's going to be. Wait until you're actually in the moment and then see what kind of an experience you have at a birthday party without drinking. And chances are you will surprise yourself. Yeah, and I've, I've found personally that a lot of the fears you have going into it end up being um, kind of unfounded. You know, mm. my, my friends were relieved when I quit drinking. They were like, we're so happy we don't have to clean vomit <laughs> off you anymore in the back of a taxi. <laughs> right, the ones who really love you are going to love you whatever your decision around drinking. I love that story. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, so many of the fears are based on the fact that we just haven't done these things before. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my favorite subject. And where can people find Sober Curious? So the book is out in the US on December 31st, and you can buy it pre-order on Amazon now. I'm actually, for anybody who pre-orders, you get access to a free 100-day guided Sober Curious reset which is asking for a commitment to 100 days of not drinking. And you get email support every day and there are going to be live webinars and things as well. So that's with pre-orders via my website, the-numinous.com forward slash books. Thanks again to Ruby and Gabby for that great interview. I'm super excited to read her book. It's literally at the top of my nightstand right now. That means it's next. It is next. <laughs> so we know that this has been a very long episode. And if you stuck with us the entire time, thank you so much for listening. It's just that this is a really important and sensitive subject, I know, for Melanie and myself personally. And we wanted to treat it with tons of care and nuance. 
Thank you, Melanie, for joining us and for all of the hard work that you put into this episode and all of the hard work that you provide Bustle with daily. Thanks, Jada. I'm, again, super happy to be here. As a parting note, I would just like to say once again, if you or someone you know is seeking help for substance use, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Hotline, uh, Helpline, I'm sorry. It's 1-800-662-HELP, and help is 4357. And don't be afraid to use that number. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons, Julia Shu, and Michaela Heck, with help and love from Roseanne Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us reviews on iTunes because we'd love to hear your feedback. You can also reach us the old-fashioned way at huddle at bustle.com. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next week.